The future is prosperous and sustainable. Step into the Building Good podcast with Jen Hancock and Tim Coldwell. Discover how business and community leaders are building a better world through community activation, inclusive cultures, and climate leadership. Welcome to the Building Good podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Thomas Mueller to learn about the future of green building in Canada, and also a little bit about how organizations can embrace green building in the fight against climate change. So, Thomas Mueller, he's the founding director of the Canada Green Building Council and president and CEO. He leads council's national green building strategy programs and standards along with advocacy and policy initiatives. Welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Hi, Chen. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks. I'm so glad to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Looking yeah. forward to our conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. So construction is kind of one of those industries that has a pretty significant impact on environmental footprint, both from the work that we do in actually constructing buildings and then the operation after. And interestingly, our industry, in some ways, we've got some really interesting technology that's happening around materials and equipment, but we're also a little bit lagging in some of the sustainability sort of market in general. There have been some really great advancements, LEED, for example, and well building standard that's really changed the way that we've built. And I think what's interesting is you're someone who's helping really lead that positive change in the industry. And now we're moving more into that kind of carbon reduction and social justice piece. So I'm really interested to kind of dig into that topic today. Sounds great. So just to kind of maybe go back before we we dig into where things are, I've actually been in the construction industry for about 13 years and your name and, and sustainability was one of the first things I really dug into. And your name has always been associated with that for me, but you started years before that, do you want to talk a little bit about what brought you to the green building industry? Where were you sort of before that and how, how, how did you enter into it? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, that I have to go back like uh, about 20 years. As you know, I, I live in Vancouver and at the time I actually worked at the Greater Vancouver Regional District, which is now called Metro Vancouver. And it's basically providing services to about 23 municipalities in, the, in what's called the Lower Mainland. And, you know, they're responsible for all these things like 1.4 billion square feet of lead projects in Canada alone, on second largest after the U.S. That is amazing. It's, it's such a great story. If you were to look back, like I can't imagine in, when you started working on this in sort of that 2002, you know, range and became the present CEO in 2005, did you imagine if you... Did you imagine it was going to explode the way that it did across the country? Not really. I don't think any, any one of us would have thought that we're involved and we're all very passionate about it, that it would grow to that extent. And the reason for that is, is that I worked in the environmental field for a long time in before green building and voluntary programs and lead by, by, for the most part is actually a voluntary program, right? It's a market, it's a mar- what we call a market-based solution. So it's, it's structured in a way that everybody can adopt it and, you know, they can save money and they can make money and those types of things. It's very much market-based. But these voluntary systems, they only, if you're lucky, you get about a six to 7% market adoption. Then it kind of peters out because these are the, you know, the passionate people and, and with LEED, when we did our study two and a half years ago, and we're just redoing that kind of market impact study, we currently work on redoing that and updating that. In some sectors, we reached like 22, 23% penetration rates in the, in the institutional side and in the commercial real estate side, so the private sector side, we reached like over 20% penetration rates in that year. And that's quite significant. So we would never thought that that would happen. 
And actually the first CEO of, of CHGBC, Alex Zimmerman, he uh, contacted me about a, a year ago. And he said, you know, when we started off, I drew this curve, how many, you know, what the adoption would be by 2020. And he said, it's like 10 times of that. So none of us would have anticipated that level of uh, market uptake and success. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, in BC, especially on the sort of sustainability movement has always been leading edge. It's no surprise that this actually sort of started with a, a small group of individuals and, you know, municipality and companies who are interested in that move forward. So one of the things that I've seen, so I actually joined when you mentioned there was a sort of an explosion around 2000, 2000, 2007 and eight. That's when I sort of became more, much more involved on sort of the lead side of life. And one of the things I've, I noticed about you know, CGBC and lead adoption that was helpful certainly was the fact that governments and municipalities, um, so provincial and federal, also had mandated it for many of their buildings. And I think it really normalized the use of the checklist and the standard across the country and also made it a bit more accessible on the private side. But what kind of work did you do and what's your thoughts on that adoption on the, the government side of life and the leadership there? And what, what maybe work did you do to help move that along across the country? It's a really good question because I think, as I remember it, when we started up Lead Canada, it's actually, it was, there were two entities, one or three. It was actually the federal government, which used to be called Public Works, and now it's called Public Service and Procurement Canada. The real estate branch, it was the previous liberal government. In 2005, they actually adopted Lead Gold for all their new construction projects over a certain size. So actually, the federal government was a very early adopter. On the municipal side was actually the city of Calgary was the first one who introduced the lead silver policy. I forget that at the time. I don't know who the mayor was at the time, but clearly Calgary adopted before the city of Vancouver. And the city of Vancouver then was number three because they had the 2010 Olympics coming up, the Winter Olympics coming up. So they felt, and the mayor was Larry Campbell at the time, and he was very passionate about this and very interested in this. And he said, we need to have a lead gold policy at the city of Vancouver because these are the Olympics. We're not going for silver, we're going for gold. So the governments played a very important role in kind of leading that change. Yeah, absolutely. But those two, like new construction and design and, and building retrofit, because we need to get a 30% reduction in carbon emissions from the building sector, right? So the zero carbon was really an important step for us to say that buildings can and must be designed to zero carbon performance operationally. Since then, we also expanded it to materials as well, that we reduce the carbon or the embodied carbon in building materials. But that was really the challenge and say, at the time, we knew that the industry had learned enough by using lead at scale, there was enough skill and knowledge and products and, and technology available that we could actually do zero carbon buildings. So they generate zero carbon over one year of operation. It was very important to put that out and also to change the conversation from energy efficiency to carbon. And the reason is you could have a very energy efficient building that still produces a lot of carbon, depending on where that building is and what energy sources you use. And we, if we want to be in a low carbon economy, we need to talk about use carbon language, not necessarily just energy efficiency language. Obviously, it's an interplay between the two because energy efficiency is a precursor to having a low carbon or zero carbon building. And you still pay your bills, mainly your bills, based on energy costs. But you will, over time, also pay based on carbon costs, like we do in BC now for 10 plus years. And I get my 40s BC 
bill that say this month you paid so and so much carbon tax for the use of, of, uh, of natural gas. So we really felt compelled that we needed to change that, that conversation. And we well on our way have doing that. We have now 11 buildings certified. There might be a few more now. These are the, the June numbers. And we have over 30 registered and another 30 in the pipeline. So they have a, there's an expression of interest to, to use the program. They're still trying to figure out the finances and so on. So we're seeing a growing interest and a good growth in that program. And it usually takes about three years for programs for people to understand it and to kind of grow it. We released our version two now that, like I said, also includes a requirement to offset embodied carbon in buildings, because that's a big component of a building as well. So we're moving the standard forward. We have this idea of continuous improvement, just like in LEED, you always have to get better. You can't stand still. We also have to be demanding. The industry can do more. The codes are coming up quite aggressively now in many jurisdictions. And LEED is always in zero carbon, so just to break new ground and show the, the policymakers and the regulators this can actually be done now at a reasonable cost, additional cost. But these buildings will pay back in terms of carbon and so on for many decades. Yeah, so do you see going forward, if LEED was any sort of indicator, carbon will be, there'll be more uptake, as you said, in the next couple of years. And would you envision lots of owners using both sort of a combination of LEED and zero carbon standard going forward? Is that kind of, would you see that being partnered up with something else or like well-building standard? Is that kind of how you see the trend going down the line? Well, there are a couple of really good questions you have in there. One is we, and I think that's probably one of the, the challenges or the things that we need to consider when we talk about zero carbon. We have to make sure that the buildings that we design or renovate are still very holistic, right? We cannot just say, you know, everybody says climate change and carbon, we need carbon reduction. And absolutely right, it's a huge challenge to achieve the reductions that we have set for Canada. But we also have to, to keep in mind that, first of all, we build buildings for people, either to live in there or learn in there and so on. So we have to keep that in mind. And we cannot say that we shouldn't pay attention to the rest of the environmental challenges that we have. If it's waste, I mean, zero waste is a big deal now. Circular economy is becoming a big deal now. Water, you know, resilience in buildings. And those are the things that LEED brings to the table, right? So we very much like buildings. We have buildings that use both. We very much like building using concert. And in fact, LEED has a, a zero carbon now, what they called LEED zero, lead zero carbon energy waste and water that introduced last year. And we are actually going to build our zero carbon standard into LEED. So if you want to do LEED zero, you can use our zero carbon standard in Canada only to get both the benefits of LEED on the holistic side, we can also get a zero carbon building. At the same time, we will allow our Canadians or the Canadian industry to also use the zero carbon standard as a standalone because every has, everyone has different interests. So we're driving it forward, but I think that, oh, I know that I think it's hugely important that we keep buildings addressing all the environmental challenges, not just one, and that we also need to keep the buildings healthy, not just because of COVID-19, but we need to keep them healthy for the occupants. And so we shouldn't let zero carbon in terms of like super insulated envelopes and those types of things, they can be counterproductive in terms of, you know, ventilation, fresh air, 
daylight and those types of things. So we, it needs to be a well-balanced approach in order for us to be successful. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the one thing we've been, it's been sort of brought up, but that lead and well, of course, but they do really well is that they do look at that occupant health component. So there's that indoor air quality piece of what it's like to be in a building. We, so if you you can build a box that's super energy efficient, but it doesn't mean it's going to be great for the people like living, working in that space. Exactly. That it's, is, right? And particularly now, if you follow the, I mean, now there's a big discussion going about schools, right? A reopening of schools. And in Ontario, they found out a lot of the schools, they need actually to bring more fresh air into schools. And many of the schools either don't have a really effective HVAC system, HVAC system, or they recirculate the same air over and over again. Well, that's not a good thing, right? You need to have fresh air, you need to have operable windows, you need to have ventilation, bigger turnover of bringing fresh air and into the schools. And these are things we've been advocating for 20 years. Uh, but it's interesting to see now, now they're being discussed because of COVID and parents wanting to keep their children healthy and want to make sure that they stay healthy when they send them back to school. Yeah. It's interesting just, you know, talking about COVID and there's a connection there too around... So sustainability in general has sort of, and sort of green building, there's an intersection of kind of green building, social equity, and sort of social justice. And there is a movement now around connecting climate and social justice and the impacts. Mm -hmm. And just talking about, you know, students going to schools or people in buildings that maybe haven't been maintained in the same way. When we think about people who are maybe disadvantaged in society are not all of them are in buildings that have great air movement and ventilation. And what, what's that kind of intersection between as lead, you know, talks about and looks at occupant health and where we have to go as sort of a society thinking about that social justice and having healthy buildings for everybody, not just, you know, for those of us, you know, if you're working in a company that can afford to have a newer lead building, but what is that, you know, what have you been thinking about that? Where is that direction going? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's really an emerging it's an emerging field. The U.S. Green Building Council, our sister organization, they have launched what they call the Living Standard about two and a half years ago, three years ago now. That really looks wants to look at that aspect: social equity, justice, health, in a broader context, and what buildings and communities should look like. And it's very interesting. It's still, I would say, it's still early days. Obviously, the U.S. is digging into that more now. They had like a health summit, and they had a social equity summit, and so on. So I, I think what it really is trying to address, the social sustainability aspect, so the three-legged stool, right? Environment, economy, society, we're getting into the social aspects now. I think the next wave now, I think, is more of a, how can we make buildings more, for example, more accessible for people with disabilities? Like the Rick Hansen Foundation has a standard that they put into the marketplace, and it's been recently referenced in, in LEED as an option for creating accessibility for everyone with disabilities, both people that have disabilities and also elderly, right? People that just don't have the mobility to do that. I think it also includes, in terms of we have a huge housing crisis in Canada, I don't think it's going to go away. And I, I always believe that the people with the, the on the lowest income level should have the greenest buildings, right? They should have the most effective and efficient buildings because they are less able to pay for energy, for heating and for electricity than people that have a good income. And they should also be able to live in very healthy environment and very healthy homes because sometimes they have less ability to pay for doctors and for dentists and those types of things and people with better incomes, right? So I think it's a precautionary measure. So I think people on the lowest income should have the best housing. 
So these are just two examples of, you know, where this could go. The third one, perhaps, is this whole issue around, you know, diversity. If you see one thing is that COVID really discriminates people that are more in kind of more marginalized part of our society are more heavily impacted by COVID. And the same thing is like, you know, housing project, we, we need to have maybe more inclusive planning and design of communities with those that uh, live in that community and what actually works for them. In Canada, probably the best example is indigenous communities, the housing in the north, right? I think the government wants to put, or I know it's putting billions of dollars into housing indigenous communities. They should be built to the best environmental standards, but it needs to recognize these communities, how they think about housing and how they want to live, not just for us to just kind of impose something on them. And actually, you need to be able to do that. You need to be kind of invited in to have that conversation with them and do that kind of work. And it also includes, you know, gender issues as well. Like, say, maybe you shouldn't have only lead buildings that have gender-neutral bathrooms, period. Like, why are we still, like, you know, this is obviously very important to a huge segment of the population, a growing segment of population in Canada as well. So there's lots of opportunity to address that. I'm quite excited about it, actually. We're finally getting to the social sustainability aspect because I think it allows us to get more people engaged also in green building and seeing the benefits for those that are not interested that in the environment or in, in money, but in more, it gets closer to the community. It gets closer to personal interest, but buildings and where you live, where you learn, where you work. Yeah, that is very exciting to see how the green building movement can adapt and adopt all of those things and push some of those things and become one of the drivers like it's been for materials and carbon energy. Very exciting. So just sort of wrap up, if you, if an organization was sort of entertaining the idea of LEED or WELL or Zero Carbon, do you have any advice that you would give them if they were wanting to, you know, heavily consider it or move forward with one of those standards in their next building or in their current building renovation? I think I would always advise people that I think they should really look at what their objectives are, right? In terms of what, as an organization, be the municipality or a commercial developer or residential available university. I think because LEED and Zero Carbon and Well, they're tools. The rating systems, they're tools, right? They're not an end in itself. As you know, LEED particularly then, well, they're kind of like a menu, you know, you can kind of choose from what you want. You have some minimum requirements, but then you can choose from what you actually want to do in your building, right? And so, and I think that for owners or developers, I think it'd be really important really to think about and said, what do I actually want to accomplish? And then use the tool to actually achieve the outcomes. Because lead is a is in, above all, it's you know it sets targets and so on, but it's an assurance tool, right? It assures you that I want to do this, 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 and then we come in and we actually verify that it has been done, and then we give you a rating depending on the accomplishment. So think about and differentiate what you really want to accomplish. I think that's probably the best advice. But then use lead and use zero carbon, use the other standards, the credible standards anyway, and get it certified, because I know that if you don't certify, despite assurance, things will go sideways and you're not getting the building that you're investing in or the building that you want. And so certification, verification, at least for now and for the foreseeable future is very important. This actually becomes an accepted everyday standard in the industry. We are not quite there yet. We're on our way, but we're not quite there yet. Great. Thanks, Thomas. So just to sort of wrap up a couple of things I really picked out from our conversation today. 
one, you know, sort of the starting of the movement, I think it's important, you know, you guys really are an example of how a smaller group of really dedicated people made a huge change in an industry. And we look back 20 years ago to where we are today. It's incredible. The passion that you had and where that started in BC and where it is now, it's, it's a standard that's used across Canada. Um, I think it's also interesting to look at how it moved and how, you know, municipalities, provincial governments, federal governments, institutions like universities really helped to drive adoption. They made it normalized and helped so that the private industry was able to pick it up. And the private industry really found a way that it connected with sort of that people, planet, profit component. And that's why it's been so successful in that market as well. So that's super interesting. If we want to make things stick and continue to go forward, we sort of need mixes of all of those things. So there's a really strong business case and value proposition for green buildings and for future, if anyone's listening and is interested in going forward, and I think listening to what you said and what I've observed as well from the construction side is that certification is important. Using one of the standards, it provides you that checklist. You don't have to point chase. You can find the things that fit best for your building. As you said, know what you want, know what your objective is and your outcome and use the standard to help you get there. And the actual is sort of the manage what you measure piece. So if you're not measuring and having someone verify the work you've done, you're very likely may not get all the outcomes that you want because it's going to be easy to lose track of those. But if you're managing them, if you have to actually have someone verify, it's that extra check that the work's being done. So Really want to encourage anyone who's listening, if you're thinking about using one of the standards, there's lots of option now. They continue to help you get better in your business. And again, great for the people in your company offices, great for the environment. And just from a marketing um, standpoint, just a good business decision. So thank you so very much for joining me today. It was a great conversation, something I'm really passionate about. Hopefully we'll see a few more people register for certifications. Looking forward to zero carbon lead well. So thanks very much. Thank you, Jen. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Building Good with Jen Hancock and Tim Coldwell. Learn more at www.buildinggood.ca and join us as we catch up with another inspirational leader who is building a better world on next week's episode.